This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 11th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In the case of Friedrichs v. California Teachers Union, the court will again grapple with compelled support for union activities. Andrew Grossman, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, details an argument presented in Cato's brief in that case that perhaps has received too little attention. You and I have spoken about the Friedrichs case before. This is a woman who is challenging her support, in in essence, of the teachers union in California. We've talked about one issue of that, but there's another issue that Cato talks about in its brief. What is that? The issue is opt-out. Um, usually when you say support uh, for a group or an institution, what it means is you agree with them. Uh, but in this instance, th- that's not really the case. It just means you're forced to pay for their speech. The way it works is by default, labor unions assume that everybody who works at a particular institution is more than happy to fund their political speech on very controversial issues, on bills that are going through the legislature, and so on. Um, and only re- recently have the courts recognized that this raises serious First Amendment issues. So uh, it, the Supreme Court has at least a little bit chipped away at this idea that it's acceptable for a union to automatically opt you in to their program, and then you have to affirmatively say, I want out. And the Knox case began to chip. What was the decision in the Knox case? Right. In Knox, you were dealing with a special assessment uh, by a labor union, what they called an emergency uh, political fund that was being used um, to combat certain referenda uh, in the state of California. And the court said, well, this special assessment is so anomalous and so unlike anything we've ever seen before, we're going to go right back to first principles. And they looked at first principles and they recognized that a labor union's duty when it's administering its programs is to to minimize the uh, violation of uh, work. First Amendment rights. And when you've got this tension between the union who wants the money and non-members of the union who don't want to fund the union's speech, the benefit of the doubt always has to go to the person whose rights are at stake. Those are the workers. And the court recognized there was simply no basis uh, to presume that the workers wanted to pay into this fund um, such that they could, you know, such that in that instance, they wouldn't have even had an ability to opt out from it. What is the question with regard to opt-in and opt-out precisely here? Well, what we've got here is the bigger question. Knox laid down the general principles, and now we're going to apply them across the board to everything. And so the issue is, on a year-to-year basis, when people decide that they don't want to be members of a particular labor union, um, that's a public sector labor union, do, do they have to take additional steps? Do they have to do something else um, each year um, and kind of run the gauntlet of union opposition and harassment to tell the union, no, I don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars per year funding your political speech? Or is it just, or is it going to be just like every other private associational group in the country where if they want your support, they ask you for it and you say yes? Now, uh, the Mackinac Center in Michigan has been working on uh, public sector unions for a long time. Of course, it's Michigan is home to Detroit, one of, for a long time, a very powerful uh, state for union membership. And they have found, at least in their state, that the opt-out provisions in uh, various union agreements are incoherent. They don't make any sense. They limit the point in time where you may opt out. And often, it's very unclear 
when you are trying to opt out that when you check a certain box that you're actually even doing it. That's right. I mean, you ought to see the things that these people do. Um, you'll see opt-out instructions that are buried in the middle of dozens of pages of legal boilerplate. Nobody can find them. Um, you'll see forms that are misleadingly uh, put together, misleadingly arranged, so that there's a checkbox uh, suggesting that you can join the union and yet decide not to fund its political speech, whereas in reality, the box does nothing of the sort. It just shifts a few dollars one way or the other. Um, and you've got uh, these very limited opt-out periods per year. In the state of California, at issue in this case, it's 30 days per year. But you may not get the notice at all until partway through that period. And then you have to send it back, uh, send a special kind of letter back to the union, and maybe they don't receive it. And even if they do get it, who knows? Um, at the end of the day, uh, it's a very anomalous procedure when the, the institution whose money is at stake here uh, is the one grudgingly administering this kind of opt-out regime. Uh, it's unlike anything else in the law. Behavioral economists have looked at uh, this issue in a different context, this opt-in versus opt-out as a way to perhaps nudge uh, Americans in the workplace to uh, have to opt out rather than opt in of a 401k. What is the most basic principle at work here when we're deciding between opting in and opting out of some regime associated with our work? Well, there really is an interesting interaction between the issue of inertia, that so many people just stick with the status quo, whatever that is, uh, and the First Amendment rights that are issued it here. And, and I think the best way that was explained was actually by a labor union that was defending in, litig in litigation its requirement that people who didn't want to support its political speech have to opt out every single year, uh, even when they've done it for years and they, they told the union, I never want to support your speech. Why did they have to do it year after year? And the union's view was actually very plain spoken. They rely on inertia um, so to, to obtain the money from what they called would-be dissenters. In other words, they recognize that there are individuals who do not support their speech, and yet nonetheless, they would still like to collect subsidies from those individuals by making it difficult to opt out, by relying on that kind of inertia effect. But you know, you couldn't be more clear that what's going on in those circumstances is that they're throwing up an impediment um, to people's exercise of their First Amendment rights by making it difficult, by putting the risk that anything could go wrong on the worker whose rights are at stake here. And that's very unusual, and it's not something the courts countenance in any other area of the law. So what if a teacher discovers midway through the year that all this is going on and uh, objects? I think this really highlights how offensive opt-out regimes can be. You know, at base, you have somebody who's a state worker, and the state government is telling them that they have to pay this money to a labor union. And a teacher, uh, for example, in this instance, you might have a California teacher, uh, might learn partway through the year that her money is going to fund speech relating to abortion, to gun control, uh, to immigration reform, to, to a whole basket of very controversial issues. And she may disagree with the labor union on those issues. And if she goes to them and she says, I don't want to fund these issues, well, she's out of luck. Every single week, the state of California is going to deduct money from her paycheck and send that money over to the labor union so that she can support its speech. If she disagrees on those issues and she's speaking out on the other side of them, it is undermining her own political efforts. She's paying for that. Um, it really is just quite offensive. Andrew Grossman is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.